Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric, a podcast for bass lovers and music enthusiasts of all genres. Join us as we revisit some of the most iconic recordings from different bassists, past and present, discussing behind-the-scene insight and stories that made up some of the most revered albums of our time, all from a bass player's point of view. Now here's your host, international recording artist, Mr. Christian Day Masonis, a.k.a. Big New York. In the winter of 1978, Casablanca Records released the fourth studio album from the hard rock band Angel. Titled White Hot, it offered music fans a slick and polished 10-track production that introduced a more pop-sounding version of the band. Diehard Angel fans received this offering with mixed reviews since the band had previously been considered a hard and progressive rock ensemble. White Hot also introduced us to a new bassist, Felix Robinson, who replaced original bassist and founding member Mickey Jones. Felix brought a bold and fresh bottom to the band's sound with his standout bass tone and fast pig style technique. Felix influenced a whole new generation of electric bass players, including myself. We Sing the Bass Electric proudly welcomes Mr. Felix Robinson. Thank you and welcome <laughs> to the show. Hey. Christian, it's great. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate this. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, let's start with the first question I have for you. Um, you've been playing bass for more than 50 years. You started your musical journey in high school. How many instruments do you play? Gosh, 50 years. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped counting the years, and I don't know if I ever really did, man. I started when I was very young. Mm. And how many instruments? You know, a lot of people took piano lessons when they were kids. I'm one of them. I uh, took uh, formal piano lessons from a, a really good instructor. And it was private lessons, uh, you know, a grand piano, learning all the original masters, uh, the, you know, the composers, uh, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms. And I did that for three, four years. I started when I was about eight years old. Um, so, yeah, piano. <clears throat> then I picked up a trombone and joined the school band, and I liked the trombone. But then I saw somebody playing a trumpet, got to have that, went to the trumpet. Beatles came out. The guitar was, you know, I had to have a guitar. Uh, my sister was a couple years older, so she had all the Beatles records. I just learned every song on every record. But she also had Motown stuff, so I learned everything. That was learning as guitar, you know. Yeah. Still played all the other instruments and um, joined bands. But, you know, it was hard to find bass players at that time. Mm. So I, I, I was one of the first guys in the group uh, that I was with. I said, okay, I'll play bass. And, you know, I think I paid 40 bucks. My mom loaned me the money to buy a $40 bass guitar. And, uh, and, it, and that's, that's where I started playing bass was in the first years of high school. Wow, wow. You remember the make of that bass? Tesco. Oh, Wait a minute. okay. Was it, it, was was it? it wasn't a Tesco. It was, um, it was one of those Japanese brands. Very obscure. I have a picture of it. Oh, okay. I actually put that picture on Facebook once. Um, yeah. It, it, was a, it was a horribly made, horrible playing instrument. Uh, but, you know, it was mine, and I played it. Yeah. Yeah, well, 
That's pretty cool, man. I mean, uh, you know, I still remember my first bass, man. It was a 76, uh, 77 Univox, which, yeah. uh, you know, the neck was freaking, oh, it was so heavy, you know, it was a, yeah. uh, it was a, uh, you know, anyway. Well, do hey. you think that, I mean, I know for me, and I, I've, I've heard you play, you're really a great bass player. Oh, but you play kind. like a, you. you play like a five, six string bass or what do you, what do you use most of the time? I play, my favorite um, is a six-string Alembic epic bass. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but, you know, I, I do like um, my four-string Warwick. I, I have a, a limited edition dirty blonde thumb bass, which weighs about eight pounds. And um, it, it's it's just a really, really fast playing bass. I, I mean, I slap on it like a madman, you know. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know... Uh, it's interesting on how an instrument could really affect your style. I mean, I think, sure. you know, six strings for me helped help my compositional skills. But uh, yeah, but you started uh, on a four string and so did I. And my yeah. bass played as bad, if not worse than yours. Uh, <laughs> I was young. I, you know, I was still growing. And I, I do think that, you know, having that hard to play instrument in my hands improved my... Um, strength for one thing which would kind of make sense you're playing something that's very hard to finger on it's going to build up your hand muscles yeah but it also increased my articulation and my ability to play with all four fingers um at least that that was part of why i think i developed technique early instead of just making sounds on an instrument i, I really started playing the instrument and quickly i got rid of that cheap bass and i got a hagstrom i think it was um which played a lot easier. And then I had a Gibson and then I got a Fender jazz bass. So I never went into the five and six string basses. I've, I've definitely played them, not mm -hmm. six string. Well, other than a, as a six string, the Fender, you know, six string, which is more like a guitar. It's more like a big baritone guitar. Yeah. And, and I did use that on the white hot album, by the way, on, on one of the songs. You remember which song it was? Um, do, 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 do. um, <laughs> you know, it was one of the tunes that I, um, I added an overlay of a strict, uh, you know, a guitar like pattern because I had learned how to do that from watching Carol Kay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the, I hope the people listening to this who are bassists will all remember or know who Carol Kay is, was. Uh, a woman looked like somebody's mom <laughs> happened to play on so many sessions on so many hit records as a bass player. And, and she was known for playing the bass part and then putting a guitar, usually a six string bass, you know, fender bass on top of that low end piece, which gave that bass uh, part a lot of depth, a lot of character because she could duplicate the parts she played identically and it would sound like one instrument instead of two uh, i didn't I, I didn't know that she did that excuse me i, I didn't yeah. know that she doubled her parts that's she something, did uh, yeah wow she was fantastic cool. learning how to sight read in those early years must have been a confidence booster do you feel it made a difference in your success as a musician yes well i did because you know having learned how to play piano and knowing what the bass clef part of every composition would be with my left hand, um, it, for me, it helped me to translate then when I started playing bass instrument, um, even though it was rock and roll, 
and Motown stuff. I mean, I was tuned into where the bass register was and what worked and what didn't along with the other instruments. Yeah, it helped. It helped. Being a reader did help me. And of course, later on, I played in stage bands and, and where reading was required. Um, you know, as, as a session musician, it always helped me. Um, as a heavy rock musician, it didn't matter at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, you, you were already working as a teenager. You were on the road. Uh, tell us about that experience. Uh, what are some of your first professional gigs? Well, when I was still in high school, I, I you know, I, I played in the garage bands with, you know, friends, played parties, played battle of the bands. But, uh, you know, I was always moving up. Even in high school, I was always looking for a better gig. And I found one when I was um, going into my senior year. And I joined a band that had had a record deal. Um, it was a local St. Louis band. Um, and, and it was managed by a guy that was in the mob. And, uh, and so I joined that band. And it was all young guys. We, we had like 10 people in the band. It was a show band. And we ended up going to Las Vegas. This was the day after I graduated high school. My parents were flipping out. I said, Mom, Dad, I'm leaving for Las Vegas the day after I graduate. What? <laughs> of course you're not going. They didn't believe me. The day after I graduated, van pulled up in front of the house, got in the car, got in the van. We all split. And I lived in Las Vegas for the next three months. That's kind of a quick, quick way to get yourself involved with the music business, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Lived in Vegas, played five sets a night, starting at midnight till five in the morning. That will teach you how to be a musician. Um, it certainly did for me. Um, then I came back from, uh, from Las Vegas to St. Louis, and I ended up joining this group that had had a, a big hit record um, nationally uh, based out of St. Louis called uh, Bob Cuban, spelled with a K, um, and Bob Cuban's band. Bob was the drummer. And his, his, his band was known as the In-Men, I-N hyphen M-E-N, Bob Cuban and the In-Men. And, you know, it was a classic 60s, now translating into the 70s band. By, by the time I joined the band, it was about three years after they'd had a hit record. And, you know, the fame had kind of worn off. Um, they had been on American Bandstand. They had uh, the number six record in the country. So, you know, there was success in that band. And when I joined it, we were still playing the hit record and doing a lot of gigs all over the Midwest. It was great training for me. Um, wow. It was a good band. Wow. So playing in that kind of show band with a large horn ensemble just had to be like crazy fun. Are there any, any challenges or stories that you, you can share about that particular environment as a young musician? Well, it was, you know, it, was a, it wasn't just a regular horn band. It wasn't a high school horn band. This was a working, you know, blue-eyed souls, what it was kind of referred to, because we were all white guys and we were playing a lot of Motown, a lot of funky stuff. Um, and the top 10 records of the day, you know, if you came to see Bob Cuban, it was, it was a dance party. Uh, we did play a lot of clubs, of course. We didn't play, you know, youth dances that often, but we did all kinds of gigs. And, um, and, and it was a great band. Everybody was, everybody was older than me. I was by four or five years, the youngest guy in the band. So, you know, every year um, for, I was in that band for almost three years. And so every year we played this huge social club event. Uh, it was called the 20th Century Club. 
in St. Louis. And it, it's a black social club. I'm sure it still exists. And it was the upper echelon of society uh, for black St. Louisans. And they like, man, when they had a party, they really did it right. They had a major, the main ballroom in the biggest hotel in St. Louis, uh, a famous place, uh, the Chase Park Plaza. <laughs> and so, you know, this one year, it was an extravaganza, man. And these people came dressed to the nines, and they had a good time. We were one of two bands. It was us on one side of the ballroom, and the other side was Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Jocko, Jocko played in that band. Jocko yeah. Pistorius. And I yeah. met him. Yeah. He, uh, he blew up his amp at one point during the show. Now, we would trade sets. So we would play a set, uh, dancing, people were dancing, having a ball. Mm -hmm. Then they would take over for the next set, you know. And so the bands, we would, we would take a break about every hour. We would all mingle backstage. I met Jocko, I mean, he was just, he was like me. He was the youngest guy in the band. Um, and so we started talking and at some point he came over to me probably that, that towards the end of the night, third set. He says, man, he says, I blew, I blew up the speakers in my amplifier. <laughs> he played really loud. And he, I don't know, I don't remember what kind of amp he had. It was not a good amp, but nobody had good amps back then. Yeah. And I had uh, a custom app with three JBL D140s in it. Um, wow. At least they were durable. It sounded like crap, but you know, it was a durable <laughs> amp. So we started dragging my speaker box over to his side. Every time we would stop playing, we, had, we, didn't, we were not supposed to have any time. So you know, we had people helping us. We're pumping this. Jocko and I are dragging this speaker cabinet, <laughs> like carrying it like a coffin. <laughs> One side of the one side of the ballroom to the other, you know. There's people in our way. They're drunk by that point. They're, you know, not pissed off, but you know, they were they were sort of like, well, what are these two white boys doing dragging this thing across the stage, across the dance floor? Anyway, that that was my experience with Jocko, and um, and then there's a kind of a follow up for him, if you don't mind me adding, which was that um, when I lived in L.A. This is after Angel when I was doing a lot of session work, and I was invited to be one of the 50 people to sit in on the um, live recording for Weather Report <clears throat> when he was still with the band. And um, this was their famous live recorded in the studio album, <clears throat> which was at the complex in Santa Monica, a beautiful uh, production facility. And um, so, you know, it was a, a closed audience. And, and I saw Jocko at that event because I was invited by his management to be there. And, and I, we didn't exactly reminisce about, the good old days. Uh, he was busy. It was his show. So, you know, we just kind of shook hands. But um, I never became his friend. I never hung out with him that much. Uh, but, yeah, there's a, there's a well-known bass player. You know, he just had a mind that, that worked so fast. And so whatever he thought of, it was kind of like he was doing it in slow motion. But the rest of us were listening to it, you know, in real time. So uh, wow. very, very wonderful player. That's a great analogy. So you... Uh... You brought up the fact uh, of Angel. How did uh, the opportunity come about uh, joining Angel? Okay. So, you know, um, well, I, you know, I had been in L.A. recording as a session player with Phil Driscoll, who was a really well-known, still is, uh, trumpet, flugelhorn, pianist, songwriter, gospel singer. He's, he's gotten very big. So Phil, Phil uh, and I recorded at, at A&M Records. 
I had lived in LA for what four or five months doing that album. Um, went back to St. Louis. I, I was determined to get back to LA. I mean, I didn't want to live in St. Louis anymore. I grew up there. I'd played there. I'd done everything that I had ever wanted to do, uh, playing in the better bands and, you know, and developing my, my ability as a bassist. I was in a, uh, a cover band, a club band at the time. I got a call from this friend of mine um, who was the, uh, he had the largest PA system in the Midwest, um, Heil Sound. I don't know mm. if anybody listening to this will know who Bob Heil is. He's still around. Good friends with Joe Walsh, by the way. Um, and he did the PA for The Who and The Stones and Hendrix and everybody back in the day. Well, when bands would come through St. Louis, that they needed a PA system and they weren't carrying one, Heil Sound would be the guys you would call big PA. So this friend of mine calls says, Felix, you know, I'm, I'm doing a show at the Fox theater tomorrow night. You really should come down here and hear this band. I said, what is it? He said, it's a band called angel. I said, well, that's a great name, you know? And he said, uh, they are, they're, they're, they're really happening. Getting a lot of press. Um, and they're going to break and it's going to be very cool for them. Problem is they need, a, they really need a bass player. Um, you'd be perfect in this band. You should come and hear them. So, you know, I went down to the show and I stood by the uh, mixing council or behind it and watched the whole gig. I think Stars was opening the show and then it was Angel. And, and this is at the Fox Theater, that <clears throat> the famous Fox where they had Chuck Berry's, you know, big anniversary gig with Keith Richards. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed watching the band. Um, I, I was obviously paying attention to the bass player, but not that much. I just wanted to kind of take it in, and I watched them, and I was impressed. They had a great stage presence. Um, the bass did not sound good. I didn't know if he was a good player, bad player. It didn't matter to me. I was really there kind of hear the band, see what's going on. Whatever follow-up I could find out about whether they need somebody or not was you know, not really the point of doing it. Mm. So, yeah, I watched Angel play after the show. Um, I had just bought uh, a 1958 precision bass um, from a friend of mine who had a small music store, had called me up and said, Felix, I got this bass, you might want it. I asked him what it was. He said, it's an old Fender bass. So I had gone down to his shop the day before and looked at the, he opens up the case and there's a 1958, uh, you know, with a brass pick guard in perfect condition. Fender bass nowadays that that'd be worth 30, 40,000 bucks. Uh, what, 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 uh, excuse me. What color was the bass? Sunburst sunburst. Oh, okay. Awesome. I, I ended up selling it to Mickey Jones. So <laughs> oh, anybody wow. who's an angel fan that looks at pictures of Mickey playing a uh, 58 precision, that's the bass that I brought to the show the night that I first heard angel. Uh, wow. it was that quick. I walked in carrying the bass because my friend said, well, maybe, you know, the, you, see, I, I told him, I said, I got this bass. I just bought it. It's got to be worth more than I paid for it. And I'm put two and two together as a band in town. They probably can afford to buy stuff like this and I'll make some money. And I did. And they, uh, uh, you know, Mickey loved that bass. I wish I could have gotten it back from him. <laughs> the road manager for Angel was the manager of this band that I had joined in LA. People all knew each other. Okay. I, I can't give you all the background. It would take too long, but yeah. I ended up being asked to come and, and rehearse, actually write songs for the white hot album. And I ended up going to, uh, I think it was Greg's house first. 
and Frank and Greg and Punky and I sat around uh, creating the songs for White Hot. Um, I could have demanded more writer's credit, but I didn't really think of it that way. I was helping to arrange the songs. I was creating the bass parts. Songs were coming together. That became the White Hot album. And in the interim, during that period of helping them write songs, it kind of became apparent that, that they needed to, to make a change. Uh, they offered me that job. And it was really becoming a partner in the band. It wasn't a job. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got my way into the band Angel. Wow, that's a very, very cool story. Uh, so, you know, learning uh, some of Mickey's bass lines, uh, mm -hmm. I really think that, you know, you gave it kind of your own spin on things. I mean, you had definitely uh, a funkier, edgier approach. Um, and one of my favorites is the uh, song White Lightning, especially your interpretation of it on Live Without a Net. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, that particular style of yours. It's right. kind of unique, kind of funky. Well, you know, we did, we did two albums, two studio albums um, that had nothing to do with the prior format of Angel. So that was all new music, right? But when we went on tour, obviously we had to play all of the tunes that Angel had recorded up to that point which included songs from the first three records that Mickey had been the bassist on. So what was I doing when I got on stage as I'm touring with the band and with those prior pre-existing bass parts that, you know, sort of were really basic. And uh, yeah, I am a more aggressive, I'm an aggressive bass player. I'm not going to say more or less. I'm a very aggressive musician when it comes to, playing bass and here i am in a band with a drummer at that point barry brant fast mm -hmm. uh powerful you know and and barry had never i you know had never worked with a bassist that was able to match him in that intensity so i really was driving him into the dirt and I, <laughs> during rehearsals for the tours i was just banging into that taking every bit of his energy and pushing it past where it could go i mean we were just having a ball so what did I do with those old tunes? You asked me about White Lightning. Um, if people are familiar with that song, you know, I, I funked it up, man. I, you know, I used my thumb. I, I wasn't all pick. Um, certain tunes that I did play with Angel, I, I used my fingers, especially in the studio. Um, on stage, yeah. I mean, I needed to use a pick to match the intensity of the guitar sound. You, you, uh, yeah, and that's one thing for bassists to understand is that you know you've got to be in the landscape here if you're in a band and there's one guitarist or even two and you know and it's loud it's a loud performing band a bass can get buried in that it can turn into a tubby low end that just sort of like hopefully has some impact with the sound from the kick drum but anybody that's been to shows and listened to the bass uh you know pre-show where they're doing sound check and it just sounds like Bah, bah. Yeah. I can't I hate that sound and I always <laughs> did so when I joined Angel I you know I got stacks of Ampeg amps and man I was biting edge in terms of my tone um to match up with the guitar sound and get in there and really you know get some crunch going so you know White Lightning is a good example of that everything on the live album is is I hope an example of that sort of like intensity sound. with hitting the, the register in, in some ways on certain songs and places where it needed it. Not every song, 
not every parts of every song, but in places on songs where it, it, it sounds like there's two guitar players because I was playing, you know, rock and guitar parts on the bass upper register and still hitting low fundamental notes with my thumb. Mm. I did that a lot. I would play chords up top and be hitting, you know, the fundamental lows on open strings, you know. I think it's good to be able to play with both your fingers and a pick. But you actually have developed a kind of uh, unique technique. I mean, you, you, I think I've seen you play where you actually had a pick in your hand and you were playing with your fingers at the same time. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, people, uh, it's, it's, you know, it just gets natural. I used a large pick because of that I used a big fender triangle heavy so that it was easier to you know hang on to a small pick would be almost impossible to do what I used to do which was keep the pick between my finger and my uh, forefinger and my thumb and then shift it back into the palm of my hand kind of grab it with my little fingers sort of like and uh, and then play you know with my fingers um, so yeah uh, plus one of the things you know that I find for myself with a pick is you got to be, you got to be like a metronome. And if you listen to my playing on that live album, um, and if you heard me now, a lot of times I'm, I'm using a plectrum to get the percussion, but I, I stay really close in time. I'm not going to play around with too much. It's got to be dead on, mm. especially when you start playing fast. So got love. If you want it is one of those songs on that record that, uh, that's on that uh, on the, the White Hot album, um, where you know it's it's like you got to be right tight into the groove, and the pick allows you to have that transitional feel while still keeping syncopation going. Um, so it, it's not just all upstroke downstroke. Sometimes it's I don't know. I just I just do it, and and I've always done it. And, and somebody has asked me that question before, and it's hard for me to answer. I just do it. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned God Love If You Want It, and I, I have a confession to make. Uh, that song was probably that and a Kiss song called Love Them and Leave Them mm -hmm. uh, was probably the biggest, earliest influence of my development as a, a young bassist and i actually Good. remember writing an original song because of the of, because of your bass line so you know i mean I, i'm always feeling gratitude to to you for that um do you have any early like influences any bass players that you know or musicians that made you feel that way about music in your early yeah. years oh yeah you know and and just to, to touch on what you just said i mean you are a smooth jazz player i mean and that's interesting because you know you had this appreciation for and you emulated parts of music uh, type of music that i played that was certainly not smooth jazz i mean you've made your reputation on you know horn bands and the things that you know i you know you came from i know you had rock and roll in your background and now you ended up with smooth jazz but you still have that and thank you for having that appreciation for a uh, style of music that doesn't, you know, it's not the same. It's a different kind of stuff, um, which proves a point to me, which is that, and this touches on the, the, this question you just asked, which is that I think good musicians can play anything um, or should be able to play, you know, multiple styles competently. 
they should be comfortable playing all kinds of music and not rule anything out. Um, say, you know, I don't do that. Um, if, if you're really a good musician, I believe you have to have learned how to perform so many different styles and, and appreciate them so that you do it right, not just copy something or emulate. It's, it's really better to feel it, you know? So I, I, the bass players that have influenced me, you know, um, a lot of the iconic names that I'm sure you would expect to hear, um, Paul McCartney, definitely. I mean, that was one of the first formative, you know, times in my life when I was listening to the bass parts, learning them when I was starting to play bass. So I would play every song on a Beatles record and know the bass parts. So it had to influence me. At the same time, I was learning, you know, Motown stuff. So James Jamerson, um, you know, and then later, uh, you know, when music got a lot more advanced and, and started getting creative, uh, John Entwistle, um, uh, was interesting to me. I, I didn't really identify too much, but he did have a really poppy sound. Remember how he would hit the strings with his right hand? Yeah, yeah. And do a lot of hammer-on and stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and he was good. Um, every bass player that I ever heard, if I, I could tell right away if they were really good at what they did. I wanted to learn something. I would concentrate on what they were doing. And thankfully, I, I got to hear some fantastic bass players Stanley Clark was in the studio with the guys, Lenny White, Chick Corea, and they would come back into the control room. I watched them record, you know, two or three hours of their sessions for that particular album, their, their first album. And um, watching him perform that close, that intimately, hearing him talk about his tone when he came into the control room, I was kind of just, you know, sitting in the back watching this uh, the magical stuff happen. Um, and it was influential for me because I could see that he was really far advanced beyond my capabilities at that time. And I figured, you know, I'm just going to do the best I can with my talent. And I, I certainly have tried to do that. But, um, you know, Stanley was in another world, really. Still is. Yeah. So um, I, I've been influenced by a lot of bass players, um, mm -hmm. including upright players, you know. Yeah, Stanley's a great upright player also. I mean, I oh, actually yeah. think I think he's actually I don't want to say a better upright player than an, an electric uh, player, but he fascinates me with his upright playing and right. uh, you know, so and you just expounded on something earlier that uh, I wanted to talk to you about because you mentioned tone. And to me, you know, the tone on your bass on the live album was, you know, really extremely distinct. Uh, how was the live performance recorded and what was your stage rig like? I mean, you mm -hmm. know, um, you know, stack of stack of MPEG SVTs and V4Bs. <laughs> so I had, you know, I had a really loud uh, rig on stage and I used a lot of it. Not all of it. Most of some of it was there for spares because MPEG sent a guy out on tour with me everywhere I went. There's this middle-aged guy with an oscilloscope and a bench behind my, 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 my amplifier system. Um, and I would blow up S SVT heads every, almost every night. And he was right there. He would drag it out. The guys would unplug it, plug another one in. I barely missed a lick because I had two or three of them running all the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, well, here's the deal with tone, all right? It starts, in my opinion, for me, it starts with my fingers. Mm -hmm. this, this is not a pedal thing. This is not a specialty amplifier thing. I, I just needed high volume. I did the rest with my hands. And 
I did use a Music Man bass, which had active tone controls. So you can't, you can't disregard that in that I had bass treble uh, controls that were active on that bass. Um, and I could find the right tone combination between that and my, my, um, my technique that I could make the bass go from low and growling, you know, really loud to less, uh, you know, to, to a softer, rounder tone. And I did that on certain songs. Um, if you listen to Telephone Exchange on the live album, I, I think there was some parts in there that I actually did some Jimi Hendrix style stuff, uh, not like a guitar, but like a bass. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. I, I really changed a lot when I was performing. I, I just did it with my hands. Um, I almost didn't change too much in anything else. I didn't use pedals. Um, got a great sound coming out of the amp, and we mic'd it, and I went through direct, uh, and we had great sound then. What size were your speakers? Uh, were they 15s, front-loaded? No. Uh, what were they? 810s. 810s and an SVT, just like always. Okay. And uh, right. two... Double eighteens, I think, um, wow, and the V four Bs, which were back loaded, horn loaded uh, cabinets. Wow, that explains a lot. You know, you had all that bottom frequency with the top end, and it, it still right. you still came. You came out um, with really little distortion, man. I mean, it was. Well, I started doing that one before Angel, by the way, and I'll take you back to when I was with Phil Driscoll's band, and we played in some pretty big, uh, you know, locations. And this is before you had, we had PA systems that were big enough to carry the bass guitar as a DI. So here's what I carried for, um, for that band. Um, I had a V4B Ampeg amp with a big folded horn enclosure. And I had a Sun Coliseum. Uh, oh yeah, two. I remember those. I remember those. Right. And yeah, I had two yeah. front loaded 15 boxes. So I had four 15s front loaded. And I had the V4B, but I didn't stop there because it didn't keep it all on stage. I would take the V4B, move it off stage, depending on the room, face it at a corner of the room. This is, these are nightclubs, not, not concert halls. But I would face it at a corner of the room away from the stage, the V4B, right? Yeah. And, and it was loud. Um, and then my 415s front loaded with the Sun Coliseum, which was a solid state amp and very bright. And so I would just get this round bass tone coming through the room using the acoustics of the room. Of course, later in my life, I became, you know, busy with big PA systems, as I'll tell you later. But, um, you know, I was sort of like creating a sound system within the room just for the bass. And so I really did always keep that arrangement, that, 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 um, that, that arrangement between the, the low end and the high end blending throughout my my bass sound you uh brought up music man basses and uh i i believe that you were probably one of a small handful that introduced the bass community to that instrument how did the relationship start with music man you know i i, I was playing uh precision bass i still have it by the way mm -hmm. um 63 precision um I had it, uh, I'd, I'd put it in the shop in the hands of a guy named Carmi Simon, who was a famous um, guitar maker. Uh, and he was building a bass for Miroslav Vitas at the same time that he was working on mine, speaking of other names. Um, 
so, you know, I, my, my, my regular precision bass was that I had used in the first album with Angel was now in the shop and um, I needed a bass. And I heard about this Music Man bass and it was the coolest thing out there. And uh, I went to the Guitar Center on Sunset Boulevard, the first and at that time the only Guitar Center store that existed. And, uh, and he had, uh, they had, I'd been there before, you know, the guy behind the counter that was the manager, I think that day. He had one Stingray, white Stingray. I wanted a white bass. Punky played a white Strat. I needed a white bass. So I went in and I said, let me play that thing. He handed it to me. I don't think I even plugged it in at that point. Um, I played it for about 20 minutes, uh, 15, whatever it was. And um, I said, cool, great, I'll take it. But there was another guy standing next to me at the counter. And he looked familiar and I think I knew him. Didn't really pay attention. It was Patrick O'Hearn, who was the bassist for Zappa's band. And, and, and I said, I'll take the bass. And Patrick goes, no, no. He says, I came here to buy that bass. Apparently, he had his eyes on it as well. So, you know, it turned out to the – we both wanted to buy the only one bass they had. And they didn't have, they didn't have two. They didn't have four. They had one. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted it, and so did I. So um, the, the, there is a showdown coming <laughs> the, the guy behind the counter goes well he says i don't care who buys it whoever's got the cash put it down you can have the base you know the businessman so i didn't have i think it was 325 dollars. i didn't have that on me um he didn't either i had a blank check in my wallet i gave it to my roadie who was standing next to me i said go down to the bank of america down this just block away cash this check get back here now he runs out the door. Patrick O'Hearn had a guy with him. I guess he did the same thing. He gave the guy a check or whatever it was, and the both roadies go out the door. They both split. We're standing there kind of like, you know, looking at each other. What are we going to do now? Um, both roadies hit the door on the way back in, carrying cash. It was, it was, it was a, uh, you know, standoff. And um, so I said, well, what are you going to do now? And uh, I think the – might have been the guy behind the counter or one of the roadies said uh, – arm wrestle <laughs> so we did <laughs> we had an arm wrestle on the counter of the guitar zone and you won <laughs> well the bass is still hitting sitting here in my uh in the case right here where i'm right 10 feet from where i'm at right now yeah it's it's yellow now years <sighs> of clubs and, and you know smoke-filled studios i mean it's it's literally yellow it's still a great bass i, I use it all the time let me ask you something now more updated. Your last recording, Fallen Angel, the Punky Meadows solo album, which was recorded yeah. in 2018, had right. you wearing many hats. What did you contribute to the album and which basses did you use on it? Well, um, thank you. Um, yeah, Punky had uh, this dream, this idea of you know, getting back active again, and I was fully supportive of that. There wasn't really a plan to start a band exactly at that point. We were just making a record. And, um, yeah, so it turned out to be, you know, a band. And I did play with them after he got it together finally. But at the time that we made the record, there was no band existing. It was just good musicians coming in to make a record with Punky, which is, you know, was a lot of fun. Um, I used the Music Man on a couple of tunes we were in a studio in, in uh, New Jersey owned by uh, Bobby Pantella, the, the, the drummer, great drummer. 
And every time I would plug the Music Man bass in, um, he'd go, you know what? I can hear, hear some noise. I mean, it's an active bass. And, uh, you know, so back and forth, trying different things. And it's just the basses. First of all, the first Music Man basses were the generation, the first generation of the op amp, you know, active basses. They make noise. They're noisy. Um, If you have the right equipment, of course, you can hear that stuff. Um, So I I dragged out and I had my, uh, my, my precision which is a really beautiful bass and it's, it's not active. It's, it's, you know, got a P bass pickups built by red Rhodes, who was a famous uh, pickup maker and steel guitarist. Actually. Uh, anybody want to look, look up red Rhodes, famous guy. And he made the bass pickups for that bass for me. And it has a 61 jazz bass pickup on it. So yeah, that's the bass that I used on most of that fallen angel album was the, was the P bass. My last question to you is about your career after Angel. You've done some great work in the field of audio and video. Can you tell us about what you're doing these days? After I left Angel, I, I bought into a recording studio. I was, I was going to take part of my, um, my assets and, and invest it in what I did. So I became partners with some people and, and built a studio on Melrose Avenue. Um, and it was a beautiful studio. I mean, a 48-track, you know, Studer trident console lovely room and um, one main room big room and we did a lot of work there um you know but i had to st- help build the studio i'm literally from the ground up it didn't we didn't buy an existing studio we built a studio and equipped it wired it did all that stuff i was working with some great engineers doing that work i learned a lot so the clock rolls on you know and the band uh, the bands that i was playing with in los angeles i finally moved to, to new york one of the first things I did in New York, I got married. I moved to New York, um, got married, started a family. One of the first businesses I, I went into was building recording studios in New York. I did a couple of big rooms with uh, people from the hit factory here. Mm. And I continued to learn more and more about discrete path audio and correct acoustics and how to achieve really good sound, admittedly in a recording studio environment. But you know that was probably the best place to learn about electronics um and i just i carried it forward into a career that eventually turned into some really great positions and some terrific companies um i ended up working with the largest a audiovisual integrator in the united states for 18 years um and i was vice president there and you know we did i mean a lot of places a lot of important installations i could go on and on with that uh, all of that stuff a lot of that stuff's on google um Anyway, so, you know, I, I, I stopped working with that company. I felt like I should retire. I, I didn't need to work anymore. I got to a point where I felt that I should really just concentrate on my health, concentrate on, you know, my daughter and uh, enjoy life. And that was about three, four years ago. Um, I had a health emergency that I got straightened out. But, you know, it taught me that I needed to spend more time, you know, just doing good things. And, um but I, I ended up getting an opportunity to go to work for Claire Brothers, which is a world-famous touring sound production company. And, um, and I'm working with them now, starting an uh, integrated systems, which means installed sound and video division. So in addition to doing the big tours, which are right now kind of dormant because of uh, the virus pandemic, but it will start up again, uh, Claire is going to have this 
super integration capability worldwide um, because they have offices all over the world, and I'm part of that team. That's what I'm doing, man. Check Chat, that and, out. And I'm continuing to play. <laughs> I keep playing. Still looking that's for a gig. You know what, man? That's why uh, it's great to to talk with you, man, because, you know, just the fact that you had music in your life, you're continuing it, um, you, you're still making it, and you're still involved in the evolution of it. I, I mean, you've been a great guest, Felix, and I, I think the, the bass community really has a lot to learn from your wisdom and, and your years. So You're um, very kind. Thank you, uh, Christian. You know, it's, it's nice to talk about the instruments and and the performing uh, the on the instrument part of, of what I've done. Uh, usually people just want to talk about certain bands, you know, uh, Angel or White Lion band that I was in for the first album that they did. Uh, they didn't end well. Another story. But it, that's all yeah. behind us now. So yeah, you know, thank, know. You for, thank you for having a, a program. I know you're going to do very well with this. You're going to have a lot of great bassists, a lot of great musicians on your program. You're a great musician. It's a perfect, natural thing. You should be doing this. And thank you for inviting me. I thank you for your time, man. And uh, we'll keep in touch and uh, we'll revisit uh, someday in the future, man. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on. Good enough. Be well. All right. God bless you, man. Take care. Take care. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. enjoyed this educational music program please subscribe to we sing the bass electric on your favorite podcast platform we would love your feedback email us at we sing the bass electric at gmail.com for bonus material and a chance to win merchandise such as autograph cds and more subscribe to our youtube channel and join our mailing list at we sing the bass electric.com as always Thank you for your support. And please buy music from these spotlighted artists. It makes a difference.